Josh, can you imagine what it feels like uh, to, to be a part of the pastoral staff and hear that and to see what God has done in so many different ways that are unexpected? And Lewis and I hear about things, and, and BJ, we hear about things later that uh, we didn't even know about, we didn't plan, but there are things that God has orchestrated, and it's just, you just smile. I mean, just, it's just fun because it's clearly God at work. Uh, we're not pushing any agenda. The Lord is behind it all and, uh, and supporting it all. But people are being faithful in following through with the commitments that they have made and in planning for uh, local missions, and we want to do other things for global missions. And uh, so I just want to say thank you to Josh. Brother, we appreciate you. We love you. And uh, the liniment is on us. No, actually, it's on you, come to think of it. Last week, uh, as you know, if you've, you've been here, unless you're a visitor, we're, we, are a, uh, we have been going through the book of Romans, and uh, uh, next week we're going to start with some Christmas messages, but as you can obviously tell from the passage today, uh, we're, we're uh, finishing this particular section uh, in the book of Romans, and uh, I want to make a few introductory comments. Last week, last Sunday, my good friend, Tom Paul, uh, gave his testimony to you. He was here from Canada, from Montreal, Madison uh, Baptist Church in Canada, in Montreal. And uh, Tom ended uh, by describing how his wife Sylvia had lectured to the fourth-year medical students at uh, McGill University Medical School. Uh, she was a counselor, licensed counselor. Uh, she gave a talk to the medical students about how to tell their patients that they had if they have a terminal disease. I mean, what do you say? And, and it, it, was a, it was a huge success, very well received. But when she finished her talk, if you remember the story, the dean of the medical school, with, with Sylvia's permission, informed the students that Sylvia had cancer and then gave her numbers, almost organ by organ, and those uh, medical students who were sitting there knew exactly what those numbers meant. And within two months, Sylvia was with the Lord. Um, that talk brought about a change in the curriculum. And for the last 20 years, Tom has been uh, giving that talk, uh, a similar talk, uh, at McGill Medical School. Uh, but here's what, so far so good, that's what he told you. Here's what he didn't tell you. Uh, the rest of the story, starting two years ago, the dean now comes up and describes Tom's cancer. Um, it's not curable. Uh, he is in remission. Uh, it was a result of being exposed to large, sorry, I didn't see that coming result of being exposed to large quantities of Agent Orange in Vietnam, and uh, Tom uh, accepts that. Uh, he went to Vietnam because the uh, governing authorities told him to go there. And obedience that, to that command may shorten his life. Uh, but Tom is uh, not about wasting his cancer. He is all about using it uh, as a witnessing tool to the doctors in Canada and, and others as well. Today we're going to be talking about the Christian and government. Um, and next week we'll, we'll be getting into the Christmas story 
uh, more specifically, more explicitly. In fact, I was kind of hoping that, that uh, because of our passage that John would select some hymns that had to do with paying taxes. <laughs> you know, when the roll is called, you know, I don't know. Don't, don't pick that one. <laughs> um, but uh, yesterday, uh, our nation received the news that George Herbert Walker Bush died. Good man, kind man, whose goal itself was a, and the phrase that he became famous for, was a kinder, gentler nation. That's pretty much what we see in the news today, right? Thanksgiving was just over a week ago, and uh, my family gathered. We had another Christmas gathering yesterday, different part of my family. Maybe your family's kind of like my extended family. Uh, we had those who totally support our current president, although probably not as all of his rhetoric. And we have those who were outraged that anyone who supports the president or anything he stands for could possibly call themselves Christians. So there was deep support for a conservative agenda, and there was deep anger over a conservative agenda. It was a good mix, if you like, indigestion. <laughs> Wasn't exactly kinder and gentler. I, ha I have mixed emotions when I look at our current political climate. Uh, one commentator said he longed for the good old days when politicians would settle their disputes like gentlemen in duels. <laughs> True or false? Christianity is political. True or false? Trick question. Oh, yeah. Christianity is very, very political. We proclaim the kingdom of God. The early Christians were not persecuted because they confessed, Jesus is Lord in my heart. They were persecuted because they confessed, Jesus is Lord, instead of explicitly Caesar is Lord. That he is the king of kings. That he is the Lord of all lords. That God's sovereignty includes who is in office. That all governments, which means all government leaders, will be judged by God and are accountable ultimately to him. Yes, it's true that Christianity is much larger and much broader than politics, but it includes politics. And by the way, here's a question. How can Paul write the things that we just read about government in Romans 13? Uh, when the Christmas story itself contains the mass execution of babies in Bethlehem by a demented, genocidal king like Herod. God has authority over all authorities. Your attitude, my attitude towards authorities 
including government authorities, is under the microscope of Scripture. Romans 12, 1 and 2 tells us we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds in all areas. If you were a first century Christian reading that, you'd have so many questions about how to live under Roman rule. You know, Jesus was executed by the Romans. Christians are, are persecuted by both the Romans and the Jewish authorities. So you're a first century Christian trying to navigate that and trying to discern what your attitudes and actions should be. Do we, do we fight back like the Jewish zealots did? What should our actions be? What should our attitudes be as followers of Jesus? Well, that's what the Holy Spirit addresses in these verses. And the first thing he says, if you're in Romans chapter 13, is this. We are to submit to governing authorities. Okay, well, let's look at it. Verses 1 and 2. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. And here's his stated reason. Here's the reason. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority and has opposed the ordinance of God, that has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Now, just like Romans 12, it's hard to misunderstand Romans 13. One scholar observed that, that the problem that everybody has with these verses is not their opaqueness, but with their clarity. The verses almost invite you to say, yeah, Lord, but what about this? And what about that? We have questions about the limits to submission because actually Scripture does indicate that there are limits. So actually, where is the line, the line drawn? And we're going to address several issues in the coming weeks, not in the Christmas sermons, but after New Year's. But today, I want us to unpack these verses, just a survey of what they do and what they don't say. The passage begins by saying that we are to be in subjection to the governing authorities. And I want you to notice something. Uh, the text does not say obey. The two Greek words for submit and obey are different. Submission is an attitude. Obedience is an action. Sometimes they overlap, maybe usually they overlap, but not always. In Scripture, children are told to obey their parents, but wives are never told to obey their husbands. Is the husband to be the head of the home? Absolutely. But his job is to protect his wife enough that he's willing to die for her as Christ died for the church. So, what Christian husbands should do, what they should be like. Things don't always work out that way. In fact, in the first century, a Christian wife, very well, this happened quite often, would be ordered to obey by her pagan husband and renounce Christ. She would have to disobey that command. But her demeanor and her attitude could still be submissive and kind and loving towards her husband. But she couldn't renounce Christ. In the first century, governing authorities did command obedience that a believer in Jesus could not comply with. Pliny, the governor of Bithynia, wrote to the emperor, to John, in 
111 AD. I'm going to read you from his letter. He described his interrogation of Christians. Listen to this. I have asked them if they are Christians, and if they admit it, I repeat the question a second and third time with a warning of the punishment awaiting them. If they persist, persist in what? Affirming their faith in Jesus as their Savior and Lord. If they persist, I order them to be led away for execution. For whatever the nature of their admission, I'm convinced that their stubbornness and unshakable obstinacy ought not to go unpunished. They also declared that the sum total of their guilt or error amounted to no more than this, that they met regularly before dawn on a fixed day to chant verses alternately amongst themselves in honor of Christ as if to a god. Remember, he's a pagan describing this. And also to bind themselves by oath, not for any criminal purpose, but to abstain from theft, robbery, and adultery. And they went on and said a few more things. He concludes... This made me decide that it was all the more necessary to extract the truth by torture from two slave women whom they called deaconesses. I found nothing but a degenerate sort of cult carried to extravagant lengths. That's the end of the letter. I want you to get the picture here. Christians, including women, who have a submissive attitude towards government, were tortured and then executed by refusing to obey government and renounce Christ. That happened, and it is still happening today. When Daniel's three friends were commanded to bow down and worship Nebuchadnezzar's image, they were submissive and polite, the attitude, but they could not obey. When the disciples were commanded to stop telling people about Jesus, they could not obey. If a medical school mandates that a Christian doctor perform an abortion on a healthy baby in order to be licensed to practice medicine, they cannot obey. If a high school principal orders a Christian secretary to falsify records to make the school look good, they cannot obey. So here's the thing. I'm just mentioning some possible dilemmas. There are lots of dilemmas that are possible. And, and we hear about them, and they are real, and they are going on today. But most of these dilemmas, for us here in the United States, are exceptions, not the rule. I have never been ordered to worship a politician. I have never been forbidden to speak about Jesus at all. This does happen elsewhere. And it may happen to us one day. Uh, I do have a friend who was ordered to falsify records, refused to, and was fired. And I do believe that these kinds of conflicts will increase. But our default position, according to Scripture, is to submit to the governing authorities. And here's the reason. There is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. All governments are ordained by God. Okay, let's get to the hard stuff. Does this include the governments of Stalin and Hitler? Yeah. Saddam Hussein, Bashar al-Assad? Yeah. God is in control of the flow of human history, including orchestrating global events 
leading up to the second coming of Christ. If he is not sovereign over history, then the songs that we just sang are empty. But that does not mean all governments are approved by God or that they should not be overthrown. Now, there's more to this discussion. Uh, Nathan confronted King David. Daniel confronted several kings. Paul appeared before Felix. Do you remember when Paul appeared before Felix? He talked to him about sin, about judgment, and about repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And Felix said, I don't want to hear any more about this. (laughs) But he kept calling him back because he hoped to get a bribe from Paul since all these people were visiting Paul. He thought maybe he could raise some money from them. And Paul had brought an offering to Jerusalem with him for for the Jewish Christians. So, at the same time, the, the, the relationship between the government and the Christian is a complex thing, as we see in Scripture. We are to respect the office, even when we don't respect the person who's in office, okay? Acts 23, 1-5, just listen. Paul is, has been brought before the Sanhedrin, and he says this, Brethren... I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. And now listen to what happened. The high priest, Ananias, commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? But the bystanders said, do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So he apologizes, in effect. But you still, you you do see the clear distinction here between the office and the office holder, don't you? The distinction is clear. Now, in Romans 13, Paul's focus is on governing authority. I made a distinction earlier between submission and obedience. Submission being an attitude that we're supposed to have, um, not a rebellious spirit. But obedience is ultimately rendered only to God. So I made that distinction before between submitting and obeying. Here's another distinguish, uh, distinction. It's this distinction between authority and power. I want you to follow me on this because I could lose the ball in the weeds on this. All governments have power. That's why they're in control. Tyrants and bullies can possess power. But there's a difference between power, the Greek word dunamis, we got our word dynamite from it. There's a difference between power and authority, which is the right to exercise power. Okay? Later, uh, Jesus stunned the people who heard the Sermon on the Mount because he he taught as one who had authority. Jesus claimed to have the authority of God to forgive sins of the lame man. He had the authority to forgive sins, and they questioned that authority, and he demonstrated that he had that authority by exercising power to heal the man. Authority and power. In Matthew 28, Jesus gave us the Great Commission and said, all authority is given to me. I've got all authority. And I delegate it to you to go and make disciples. In Acts 1.8, he said, you shall receive power 
when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses. So authority and power. Authority in Matthew 28. Power in Acts 1.8. God possesses all power and all authority. And here Paul says this, and it's just, you just have to wrap your mind around this. God has delegated both power and authority to government. Both. Even the government which one day will put Paul to death. Even the government which had already put Paul's Savior to death. Question, was the death of Jesus on the cross God's plan? Absolutely. It was. Before the foundation of the earth, the Son of God would go to the cross and take on himself our sins so that when we believe in Jesus as the substitute for our sins, our Savior, God accounts Christ's righteousness to us, and we are forgiven. We become children of God, those who believe on his name. That is God's plan from eternity past. So the death of Jesus was God's plan. Are those who executed Jesus accountable to God one day for their actions? You can say absolutely again if you want to. Listen to this, and this is actually, John read this. This happened so many times. John read this this morning as we uh, had, began our call to worship. Listen. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and knowledge of, foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So you know, it's very clear. They are accountable to God for their choices, for their actions. Here's the deal. In Romans 13... Paul is painting with a broad brush, and he describes the reasons why we are to submit. Government exists to protect human flourishing by punishing evil and preserving the good. Nazi Germany doesn't exactly fit that category, does it? But Paul is not dealing with the exceptions here. We'll talk about some of those down the road. He is stating, first of all, what the rulers in charge of government are held accountable for. And second, what citizens of that government can hope to expect if government functions well. And third, what responsibilities believers have under any kind of government. Verses 3 and 4 tell us what to expect from government. We're going to look at that in just a second. But again, just make sure that we understand a third distinction. There are two areas of responsibility that are being described here. Two areas of responsibility. There's the government's role, and then there's the believer's role. Whether or not the government, fun government functions well does not change the believer's role. The believer's role is not conditioned on the government's goodness. It is a complex thing. But just to make sure I'm, I'm not getting this wrong over the next weeks, uh, I have been studying and reading uh, first through third century Christian writers and seeing what they said about this passage because they still lived under the dwindling Roman Empire at the time. And what was interesting to me as I read their comments on this passage is they were not looking for exceptions. Kind of surprised me. For example, Theodore of Seir, who was actually regarded as an Old quite the Old Testament scholar, commented this, quote, Since God wants sinners to be punished, he is prepared to tolerate even bad rulers. Chrysostom, 
John Chrysostom said, quote, he does not speak about individual rulers, but about the principle of authority itself. For that there should be rulers and ruled, and that things should not just lapse into anarchy with the people swaying like waves from one extreme to the other, is the work of God's wisdom. So here's what rulers are held accountable for before God. Verses 3 and 4. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, you will have praise of the same. For it, that is the governing authority, is a minister of God to you for good. If you do what is evil, be afraid. For it, government, does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So verse 3 gives us a general principle. It's a statement of God's design for government. It's not a particular statement about this or that government. It's a statement of principle that just rings true. Even when government gets things wrong, more often than not, more often than not, government maintains order. And the most efficient way to maintain order is to provide justice. Individual believers are to reflect God's mercy and grace and we can turn the other cheek. We can do exactly what Romans 12 tells us to do as individuals. But the state administers justice. 1 Peter 2, 14. Kings and governors are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. And that's written later under more intense persecution. And so is this. To first, Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 2. Pray for kings and all in authority in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Augustine wrote, Without justice, what are kingdoms but great gangs of robbers? Even when you look at evil governments, from Scripture the point is clear that bad government is better than no government. Anarchy is always worse. Because even the worst governments punish some evil and reward some good. I loved Ronald Reagan. He famously said, in this present crisis, government is not the solution to the problem. Government is the problem. Well, in New Testament times, that wasn't quite the case. (laughs) In New Testament times, the problem was not concern over too much government. The problem was fear of too little government, that Rome was too hands-off to the point of where, and, 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 and Rome w- was fairly hands-off to let the local governing authorities uh, rule, let the Jews rule the Jews and so forth, as long as it didn't threaten the Roman Empire in any way that might potentially foment a rebellion. So, uh, yeah. But, but the, the concern was that outside the centers of the Roman Empire, Most cities were never far from anarchy. Uh, One writer put it this way, government was the only means of ensuring some kind of public order, justice system, and collective defense. Public order, justice system, and collective defense. So, are there bad governments? You bet. Governments are run by sinful people. They can be deceived, manipulated, and corrupted. 
I'm, you know, I'm just, it was, it's not that I woke up this morning and thought, I want to step on everybody's toes. I just want to do that today. And then I'm going to leave town. But I'm going to do it. Uh, maybe, not, maybe not everyone, but uh, some of our U.S. allies are not good, like the Soviet Union in World War II, ally, but not good. Or the government of Saudi Arabia now, which is starving the people of Yemen to death. So questions can be raised that don't have easy answers. We are right now, here at Signal Mountain Bible Church, waiting to hear from two of our missionaries who refused to, to pay a bribe to the governing authorities, whether or not they'll be kicked out of the country. We're waiting to hear. Humanly speaking, if, if they don't pay the bribe, it erases 10 years of mission work, humanly speaking, but not from God's perspective. God's plan, so yeah, there's just all kinds of complexities here. But God's plan, if you look at verses 3 and 4, is this. If you, if you keep the law, government is supposed to be a source of protection for you. If you break the law, government will become a source of justice for you. So submit for the sake of justice so that in the long run, good prevails over evil. Because frankly, in the long run, God is going to make sure that good prevails over evil. And maybe God will call some of you into government. If so, remember that your ultimate allegiance is to Jesus who tells you how to govern. I hope he does. The verse says that government does not bear the sword in vain. There are three uses of the sword in the first century. Obviously, war. Secondly, capital punishment. And third, the threat of force to keep civil order, the threat of force to keep civil order. All three of these, I believe, are in view here. And actually, the term sword bearers is found in first century papyri as a name for the local police. So he's talking about the authority to exercise power, I believe, at all levels. And he says in verse 5, he gives a motivation. It is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, that is, because of government's wrath or avoiding punishment from government. So not only because of wrath, which is an external thing having to do with man's law and not running afoul of man's law, but the verse continues, also for conscience's sake. That's internally that we comply with God's law, which is written on our hearts, as Romans 2.15 says. So your motive for submission should be higher than avoiding punishment as Christians, we should do what is right, not because we'll be punished if we do what is wrong. We should do what is right because it's right for conscience's sake. Government does not bind my conscience, only God does. But by obeying the lesser authority, the lesser king, we pay homage to the greatest and ultimate king of kings and lord of lords. And I'm, I'm just going to add this. Once conscience is invoked, a biblically informed conscience sets our limits for what we can and cannot do. And that includes what we can and cannot do in obeying governing authorities with an attitude of submissiveness for conscience' sake. 
And we'll talk about this later. But we submit because of conscience. And there may come a time when we have to resist because of conscience also. When government violates justice or oversteps the boundaries that God places on government. An Old Testament example would be when Daniel's friends refused uh, the Babylon, Daniel and his friends refused the Babylonians' food in ch- Daniel chapter 1, their training regimen, but altered, offered an alternate uh, plan instead. Uh, another example in Daniel would be when, when the three friends refused to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's image that I mentioned a few moments ago uh, and refused to pray to that. A New Testament example, which is, I'm just going to read this to you. It's fascinating. It's from Acts chapter 5, uh, verses 27 to 29. Just listen. Um, they, they, they brought the, the Christians, the, the apostles, before the Sanhedrin. When they brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Who's this man? Jesus, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. It's so ironic because just weeks earlier they had shouted to Pilate, his blood be upon us and on our children. Well, but Peter and the apostles answered, and here's our statement, we must obey God rather than men. We have a higher allegiance. Well, what Paul does in verses 6 and 7 in Romans 13 is give a couple of examples. We're going to look at them very briefly of the attitude of submission. Uh, Verses 6, verse 6 says, because of this, that is the proper role of government, you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing, that is serving God by ruling well. It doesn't mean that they know the Lord, but when they rule well, they're doing what God wants them to do in serving Him, ultimately. Uh, I've, I've I've been reading... I mentioned, I quoted to you Pliny's letter to Emperor Trajan. Uh, it's from 111 AD. I quoted that to you a few moments ago. I've been reading a, a, a book on um, uh, Roman writers at that time, and I just finished a chapter on Pliny. And, and the guy was a diligent governor. I mean, he was just, just all over the details of budget and infrastructure. It was it's astonishing. The, he, he was really good at it. So what, what he says is, rulers are servants of God devoting themselves to this very thing. That, that gives the best case interpretation of their motives, I know. But he continues in verse 7, render to all what is due them. Tax to whom tax is due. Custom to who custom. And, they mean, and he continue, the idea is, is due. Fear to whom fear is due. Honor to whom honor is due. And then we could go on to verse 8. Oh, no, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. He brings it back to this individual place of where he was in chapter 12. Um, Let love be without hypocrisy. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. So he brings it back around to that point. Now let's break verse 7 down a little bit more. Tax to whom tax is due. And, and the word tax refers to the tax that was pay, paid by the citizens of a nation that were subjected under another nation, and, and they paid tax to the ruling 
nation that was in control, and the Jews hated that tax. And Nero was really bad about imposing very unpopular tax laws. Uh, the second term is, yeah, but Paul says, pay the thing. Custom to whom custom. This is an indirect tax on goods that you bought that was used to support local government. So if you want to, you could look at it this way. It's kind of not quite equivalent, but not too far off the mark. Tax to whom taxes do, that would be like our income tax. Custom to whom custom, that would be kind of like sales tax, something like that. Fear to whom fear refers to the respect that you give to the person who can impose penalties on you for breaking the law. And honor to whom honor, which refers to the respect that is due to the office, if not to the person who occupies it. You remember when Paul said, I'm sorry, didn't know he was a high priest. He was not honoring the man. He was honoring the office. But it's great when you can respect both the office and the person who occupies the office. So these obligations remain regardless of the nature of the government or who is ruling in the government. So I'm going to... I'm going to tie together a few thoughts and I have a, 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 a uh, I want to make four observations and three applications and you're sitting there thinking oh really four observations and three applications observation number one we owe these obligations to government uh, observation number one we owe these obligations to government Submission, payment of taxes, and prayer. Prayer for our rulers. Two of those three are in this passage. Submission to authority, payment of taxes, which is the support of government infrastructure, and prayer. First Timothy 2, we were to pray for those who are rulers over us. Second observation. The commands in Romans 13 were not given under a good, benevolent government. I mean, later things become, became unbearable under Nero. The, but even after they became unbearable, the same commands are repeated by Peter and by Paul. The obligations remain the same. Third, governments answer to God. No state is independent. Individuals who comprise governments are accountable to God for the choices that they make, or we might say here for the votes that they take. They're not accountable to a political party or to lobbyists or anyone else for the way that they conduct themselves and the choices and decisions that they make. They are accountable to God who will ultimately hold them responsible. And then fourth, the greatest injustice ever committed was the false conviction of Christ by Pilate. Everybody who is convicted of some crime, you know, can never claim that they're sinless. Only Jesus could. When he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. When Jesus was before Pilate, the exchange in John 19 is just startling. I want you to listen to these verses. Jesus, uh, Pilate said, don't you know that I have authority? There's the word. Don't you know that I have authority, authority to release or to crucify you? 
You remember Jesus' reply? This is what he said. You would have no authority over me unless it had been given from above. That's the bottom line. Later, the resurrected Christ said, all authority has been given to me. So, four observations, now three applications. Number one, taxes. And this is why you came today, right? Tax season is coming up. And we grouse and we complain. But believers are to be scrupulously honest in the way that we record and pay our taxes. This is just really clear for what, what we're supposed to do. Do it transparently. And also, so that the way that you spend your money, which is what the Bible calls your treasure, which you're storing up your treasure in heaven, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. Wouldn't it be wonderful if your tax return could be a tract? That you, would, you were so scrupulous about the ways in which you paid your taxes and by the giving that, you, uh, that was a part of your life, showing where your treasure is, that the way that you handle your finances is a testimony to your tax preparer or to who the IRS agent who looks at that and says, wow, I'm, I need to repent. I need to come to Jesus. Where's the gospel? <laughs> Is this Form 316? <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm overstating this, I know. But what he tells us to do is clear. Just do this. Secondly, a second application is the area of authority. Authority is one of God's transferable concepts. Parents, especially parents, make sure that you raise your children to respect authorities over them. This includes governing authorities. Consider the example of Paul when he spoke back to the high priest again and then apologized because of the office that the man held. When you teach your children to respect and submit to the authorities over them, which is government, police, teachers, other adults, whomever, they are more likely to submit and understand that transferable concept when they are called upon to submit to God, the ultimate authority. Submission is a transferable concept. If you dislike our current president, be careful how you speak about him before your children. If you like our current president, be careful not to deify him or to communicate that he's above the law. Hope I got everybody there. So taxes, authority, and here's the last point I want to make. I'm going to ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 22. Remember Romans 12, 1 and 2, all of this section is about living here and now for the God who loves us so much that he sent his only son to die in our place so that we might, through faith in him, be saved. And our response to Romans 8, 1, that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, our response is to Romans 12, 1 and 2, to become living sacrifices acceptable to God. That's our reasonable service of worship. What does that mean? Well, let's close with a passage about taxes. 
Romans, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 22. I'm going to read with verse, starting with verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Now, the Herodians were the opposing political party. They supported the Herods. The Pharisees did not. This is oil and water. But they together hated Jesus more than they despised one another. Does that make sense? So the Pharisees and the Herodians are jumping in together on this pincher movement trap against Jesus. And the disciples said this to Jesus in verse 16. Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Tell us then, what do you think? Boy, does that sound political or not? <laughs> they are buttering him up, they think. Here's the question. Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? Now, if Jesus said, yes, it is, and the Pharisees would accuse him of disloyalty to uh, Israel. If he said no, the Herodians would accuse him of disloyalty uh, to the state. So either way, they wanted to get him. They thought they had him. It's kind of like, have you stopped? When did you stop beating your wife? You know, one of those kinds of questions. There's no good answer uh, to that. So um, that is a very bad example. Sorry. That is a very bad example. Um, Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin that is used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. He's very specific about which coin, I mean, about, about what tax it is. And, and uh, the fact that they produced one is kind of self-incriminating. Um, this, was the, this was the tax uh, that, uh, um, that they had. Um, this was the denarius. It was... It was uh, that was the, the amount that everybody was supposed to pay, a denarius. So here's Jesus' question. Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, then render, which literally means pay back, not just pay. They had asked him about paying. He uses a different word, pay back. Pay back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they were amazed. And leaving him, they went away. Oftentimes, we pass over these verse, uh, this verse and we don't think about the two sides that Jesus laid out here. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Whose image? Caesar's. Stamped in his image. Pay it back to him. That's not the point. Who is stamped in God's image? We are. Pay it back to him. And to God. The things that are God's. Lord, we belong to you. We acknowledge this. We thank you for your grace in saving us through Jesus. And we ask, Lord, that we would be faithful in navigating the responsibilities you have laid out for us. 
Lord, and that you would be glorified in the ways in which we live, transformed and renewed lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.